want to invite you tonight to think with me about the glory of the incarnation from John chapter 1. Incarnation comes from the Latin incarno, the prefix in, and the word carno, which means flesh, in the flesh. I used to tell students at youth camp, if you can't remember what incarnation means, just think about Mexican food and go from there. Carne, as in carne asada. Carne refers to meat, and so the incarnation is God with meat. And uh, I, happen to I happen to believe that I think most of life's problems could be solved with Jesus and some Mexican food. Um, and so tonight we're thinking about that, and, and perhaps the most uh, concise statement about the incarnation in the whole New Testament is in the verse I just read in chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh. In one of those great scenes in the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis records Lucy saying, in our world too, a stable once had something in it that was bigger than the whole world. That's the incarnation. The one who created everything entered human history. As Spurgeon said, he that made man was made man. Or as Luther said, the mystery of the humanity of Christ, that he sunk himself into our flesh, is beyond all human understanding. Time Magazine reported that there are more books written about Jesus than any other person in history. Most of those books focus on the identity of Jesus. More controversy surrounds this question, who is Jesus? And how you answer that question is more important than any other question that you'll answer, I believe, in this life. And John gives us a stunning portrait of who Jesus is in what's usually referred to as his prologue. You know, one of the striking things about the creeds, uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and others, is that they immediately jump from the birth of Jesus to the death of Jesus, or to the birth of Jesus to the suffering of Jesus. There's nothing said usually about his teaching, that three-year period of time, as Jesus was working miracles. The Apostles' Creed says he was born of the Virgin Mary, and then immediately says, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Or as the Nicene says, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. And then the next line says, he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. Now, you know, if your obituary included just your birth and then your death, that would be really strange. Didn't something happen in between that period of time? Well, of course, the ministry of Jesus was important. The miracles of Jesus were important. The teaching of Jesus was important. But Jesus was a man born to die. He was born, as we just sung, that man no more may die. And today we often hear in pop culture that it doesn't really matter who Jesus is, just sort of live by his ethical teaching, live by the golden rule. Well, the early Christians didn't even include that period of time in the creeds. What ultimately mattered is who he is and what he came to do. And the teaching of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus actually serve to explain who he is and serve to explain what he came to do. And so tonight I want to invite you just for a few moments to think with me about what John says about Jesus. Three things. First of all, he says that Jesus is the fully divine Son of God. His prologue opens with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You notice the, the pre-existence of Jesus that's underscored in these verses. In the beginning. Harkening back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was, which speaks of the eternality of Jesus. There never was a time in which Jesus did not exist. He always was, wasing. As he says later in his gospel, before Abraham was, I am. 
And John calls him the Word. That is, he is the supreme revelation of God. If we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus. He also underscores in verses 1 and 2 his unique relationship with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That Jesus has this perfect relationship with God, the Father. The word can be translated toward, perhaps denoting face-to-face intimacy and relationship. He has a one-of-a-kind relationship with the Father. And his divine essence is also noted. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not a God, but God. That Jesus shared the same essence of the Father, though they differed in person. The Word is full deity. As Paul says in Colossians 1, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you've seen me, Jesus tells Philip, you've seen the Father. Or as we just sang in the hymn, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Well, here's the good news about Christmas tonight. God has come down for us. (laughs) Other religions tell us to, to reach up to God or try to tell us how to reach up to God. But the good news of the gospel is God came to us. He came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The good news is not let's all be good for goodness sake. But rather, the word became flesh and this Jesus was good for our sake. The word became flesh, praise God, and dwelt among us. Jesus is the fully divine son of God. The second thing that John says in this prologue is that Jesus is the true light who compels a response from everyone. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Speaking of the Son's work at creation. In him was life. Jesus is self-existent. And the life was the light of men. Light and life, two big themes in the Gospel of John. If you're new to the Bible, John's a great book to begin with. In the first, 13, first 12 chapters, light and life dominate. And then in chapter 13 to the end, love dominates. Light, life, and love all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And here John underscores the idea that this life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So the light that was coming into the world is met with tremendous opposition. And we find immediately in John's gospel these two opposing kingdoms of darkness and light. Darkness is the enemy of light. In chapter 3, we read that people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. But this light and darkness, is not, they're not two opposites of equal power. You notice what John says. The darkness cannot overcome the light. No person can even put out this light in their own heart. That doesn't mean everyone is a Christian, Romans 1 tells us that we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. But you can't put out the light. The light comes and the darkness cannot overcome it. And what we need as uh, as human beings is divine intervention so that we can surrender to this light. You remember uh, Genesis 1 perhaps, that there's a confrontation with the darkness when God says, let there be light, and the darkness surrenders to the light. And so it is in our own hearts. It's a call for surrender. This is what happens when a person turns to Christ. As Paul says, God has shined the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into our hearts. The good news tonight is that the light has come. Come into the darkness 
And God, by His grace, has opened up our hearts to embrace the Lord Jesus and receive Him. John then goes to talk about a witness to this life, Jesus' cousin John, who came to bear witness to the light that people may believe in Him. And then we read in verse 9 that this true light causes a reaction. The true light, speaking of Jesus, later in uh, the gospel he's referred to as the true bread. Here he is the true light. He's the climactic light. He is the saving light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is the incarnation. The light was coming into this dark world. Now we know at a basic level the value of light, don't we? Light brings life. Things grow in the light. Your plants, your vegetables. <clears throat> light is symbolic of the truth. We often say that the lights came on when we understand something. Light illuminates our path. We need lights to, to drive at night. Light provides safety. How many of you kids like to sleep with the lights on? How many of you adults like to sleep with the lights on? <laughs> Do people get morally better when the lights go out in a city? I went through Hurricane Katrina. People were not morally better uh, when all the power was out. Light provides safety for us. We like the light. Light provides healing. There's a reason people move to warmer climates, often for their own health. In uh, three or four days, my wife and I will celebrate our 20th anniversary. And we'll be going down, well, I'm not telling you where I'm going. I may not come back, but it's going to be warm. <laughs> and that's hopefully going to provide some healing for us as I get some tan on this head. And light brings joy. I mean, don't we always want to see the sun come out after great periods of darkness? And there's a reason why vampires come from the Pacific Northwest and not, you know, sunny Florida or something like that. That's, that's the light. And at a deeper level, Jesus Christ, being the light of the world, is the one who brings life. He brings healing. He brings the joy. He brings the truth. He brings the safety. And John says that this light does something, it causes a reaction so that some, verses 10 to 12, receive the light while others reject the light. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. John divides humanity into two groups, those who are rejectors of the light and those who receive the light. Some are drawn to the light of Jesus. Some flee from it. Even some of the Jewish people, as John says, rejected him. But to those who receive him, he gives them the right to become a child of God. That is, you're given a privilege that you did not have previously. You have the right to a new status so that our fundamental identity is not based upon our performance or how much money we have, but by the simple fact that we can call ourselves a child of God. That reality changes everything. He makes us into something we were previously not. To those who receive him, they became children of God. And that's what Jesus has come in the world to do to give us this new identity, to give us this salvation. Well, that leads us to the third idea in the prologue. Jesus took on humanity, revealing glory. I read this verse previously. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, 
Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. This denotes a period of time. At some point in history, deity took on humanity, revealing glory. Remaining what he was, as the old church fathers used to say, he became what he was not. He took on humanity. He took on, as John says, flesh. You know, John doesn't say that he took on a body. That would be true. Or that he became a man. That would be true. But he puts it more bluntly. He puts it more crassly. That the word became flesh. Paul says this in Romans 8, 3. That Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't take on sin, but he took on everything else it meant to be human. And John is probably countering an idea that was present then, that's still present today, that this idea that Jesus only appeared to have a human body. As one former megachurch pastor said, it really doesn't matter if Jesus came in the flesh. What matters is the idea of Jesus. Well, I'm not gathered here tonight to worship the idea of Jesus, but Jesus himself. John says in his epistle, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, 1 John 4, 2. So John wants us to see something of the earthliness of this, that the word became flesh. The word, you might say, had fingernails. The word had stomach problems. The word became flesh. In the first 13 verses, he unambiguously affirms the deity of Christ, and now in verse 14, he unambiguously affirms the humanity of Christ, that Jesus really became flesh. And this is a great mystery. <laughs> it's a great tension we meet all throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, that though Jesus, for example, was born of Mary, he is the creator of all things. Though he grew in wisdom and stature, he knows all things. Though he went to sleep on the boat in his fatigue, he commanded the waves to be still. Though he got hungry, he really is the bread of life. Though he got thirsty, he really is the living water. Though he went to sleep, though he wept at Lazarus's tomb, he really raised him from the dead. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. It's a rich word that John uses for dwelled. It can be translated, he tabernacled among us. He lived among us, or as the message paraphrases it, the word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. And we have beheld his glory. Glory that resided in the temple is now residing in a person. So that if we meet God, we don't need to go to a temple. We go to a person, Jesus himself. And we have seen his glory. That's what we're made to see, glory. They saw him with real human eyes. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is really big. God came to earth, and we could read, he was full of wrath and judgment. But what we read is, he was full of grace and truth. Grace. That's what tonight is about. Thinking about the grace of the Lord Jesus. He was full of kindness and goodness. He was full of love. He supplied everything we need for salvation. The incarnation was an unparalleled act of grace. God has come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Titus 2 simply puts it, grace appeared. And truth. In Jesus we find truth as well. He's completely reliable. He reveals that which is true about humanity and salvation. Jesus came to reveal to us grace and truth. 
And they are seen most vividly, these attributes, at the cross, where the truth was upheld and grace was unleashed. Grace was at the cross. You might say the cross is the real Christmas tree. There we get what we don't deserve. And truth is at the cross. All the promises of God, all the prophecies are fulfilled. Justice is upheld as sin is punished. Grace is dispensed without the truth being compromised at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so John continues on in verse 15, speaking about John the Baptist, speaking about uh, his role as John confessed that the one who comes after me ranks uh, before me because he was before me. <laughs> it's kind of confusing, John. Like, is it before him or after him? And of course, in his pre-existent state, Jesus came before John the Baptist. But he also ranks uh, 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 beyond him because he is this one, this incarnate one who became flesh. And we have received from him grace upon grace. Jesus is a fountain of grace. Every good gift of salvation we, we, we have tonight owes its source to Jesus Christ. Grace for grace or grace instead of grace. This grace knows no interruption for his people. And Jesus, he says, is verse 17, is superior to Moses. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean that the law is not to be associated with grace. God was gracious in his covenant making and in his law giving. The problem was not with the law, but with the people. Further, John is indicating, as he'll go on to say, that the law had a preparatory function. The law anticipated the word incarnates coming into the world. And in Jesus, fresh grace has come. Grace has surpassed the previous grace. Therefore, he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Christ has come, and he has revealed the nature of God to us. He's revealed the glory of God to us. We can have confidence that when we look to Jesus, he's giving us an accurate revelation of the nature of God. He has made him known to us. Well, what does all this mean for us, practically? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let me give you some final reflections before we sing and light our candles tonight. First of all, the incarnation has to do with salvation. It highlights our need for divine rescue. We cannot save ourselves. Only God can save us. And the true light came into the world for that purpose. Jesus didn't come into the world so we could start a holiday. He came into the world for something much more important, namely to save us from our sins. First John tells us, you know, he appeared in order to take away sins. And then it goes on to say, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And all of this in John's gospel funnels into chapter 20, verse 31, where John says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's what we pray you would experience tonight if you're not a believer, that you would, you would experience this life in his name. All of these things were written that we may believe in him. The, secondly, the incarnation means adoration. There's a reason tonight that we sing to Jesus and not about ourselves. God has become, uh, God has taken on flesh and has dwelt among us. 
we don't have to die in our sins. The incarnation tells us God keeps his promises. And so we sing, oh come, let us adore him. Let us adore him. But thirdly, the incarnation also means identification. That is, it reminds us that God can sympathize with our human weaknesses. Jesus is able to identify with you in your trials. He's able to identify with you in your suffering. He knows suffering, not simply because he knows all things, but because he entered into this fallen world and he himself suffered. So if you come into the room tonight and you say, life is hard right now, look to the man, the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. Hebrews tells us that he's able to sympathize with us and give us grace and mercy in our time of need. The older I get, the more precious this is to me. The Savior is near to us in our suffering. As the hymn said, he knows our need, and to our weakness, he is no stranger. The incarnation means that Jesus can identify with you in all of your trials. Fourthly, it means emulation. The coming of the Word into this world has given us the example to follow. He gives us the model for our lives as Jesus modeled godliness. He also has given us the model for love. Love one another, we're told, as Christ loved you. He has demonstrated what love looks like as he came in the flesh and went to the cross. And we're to emulate his mission. Jesus was sent into this world and we are sent into this world to be good news people in a bad news world. And finally, it means anticipation. The coming of Jesus into the world at the first advent is a reminder to us that Jesus Christ will come again. We live between the two advents tonight. Jesus came, he did his work, he ascended to the Father, he is seated at the right hand, and now we are waiting for this Jesus to come again. He's given us not just a pattern to follow, but he's given us hope. Christmas is a reminder that Jesus Christ is coming again. Just as he came the first time, we can be assured that he will come again. And this encourages us tonight in our suffering, and it purifies us while we wait. He that made man was made man. Believe in him for salvation. Worship him in adoration. Look to him in suffering. Imitate him in life. And anticipate him as he prepares to come again. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we thank you tonight for the good news of the incarnation that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And tonight we adore our Christ. We worship him. I pray even now as we sing these songs, you would lift heavy hearts to all that we have in Christ and all that Christ has for us in the future. We bless your name tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.